Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast, a Halloween edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. Oh. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> I'm your host, as oh, always, Chris McDaniel, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Howlin' Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. <laughs> and... Uh, Joe Manis of St. Louis Beacon. And this week's special guest... Frightened Jane Cunningham. <laughs> And we're, we always break new ground on this show, as I was telling you in the elevator. This is our first Chesterfieldian on the show. And my dad, as I've told you before, my dad grew up there. It's an honor to finally break that barrier with this show. <laughs> it's and, an honor to be the one breaking it. <laughs> and she's also arguably the best dressed candidate, I mean, guest that we've had so far. Well, everyone's looked fine, but uh, former oh, Senator Cunningham is in a fabulous red and black outfit. And even her umbrella coordinates. So that's why I'm mentioning it. None of us dressed up for Halloween. <laughs> I was very disappointed. I was very disappointed. But let's get to our guest. Most of the time we have people tell us a little bit about themselves. They might not be familiar with where you are right now. So start us off with where you started in politics. I actually was always interested in public service and government service uh, back in high school and college. My husband and I were both alike. We both ran for the student government type offices. Um, we both went to Washington, D.C. after college, and that's where we met. I worked in a congressional office. He worked in the White House staff. And when we moved back to St. Louis, I always supported Republicans. John Danforth, I actually worked on his campaign staff. Um, Ashcroft, Bond, people like that. I always saw myself in a supportive role until our boys got into school. And then I felt compelled to do what I could where they were, which was run for school board. So I ran for public school board and served there. And it was there that I realized how much I thoroughly enjoyed and found it so satisfying to do constituent services and public policy. So when we moved to Chesterfield and an opening came in the legislature, I ran for it. I knew how to run a campaign, and so I ran for it, and that's how I got to the legislature, served in the House for eight years and the Senate for four. Now, you kind of have a reputation for being like a very good campaigner. I mean, in your 2008 race, I mentioned this kind of on Twitter, you faced off against two opponents, Gina Loudon, former Senator John Loudon's wife, and Neil St. Ange, the only reason I knew Ellisville existed before the Ellisville decable <laughs> was because of Neil St. Ange being from there. Um, what do you think got you over the top in that race? Obviously, that was a Republican primary becomes the senator type thing, but you won pretty handily. And I was always curious what you thought was the reason you won that contest. Very few people will outwork me. I just don't know how to quit working. Um, I also raised a whole lot of money, about half a million dollars. I started way out, so I had more money. And, and basically, I was out walking the streets, going door to door with my team every single day. Now, of course, you were not able to run for re-election in 2012 because during redistricting, your district got moved across the state, if I'm correct. That is correct. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I do want to talk a little <laughs> bit about that, Jess. Thank you for asking me. Uh, yes, the district was literally eliminated, which was a huge blow to St. Louis County uh, and the whole St. Louis region to make it so we lost a whole senator, a pro-business, pro-jobs, pro-economic development type senator, which typically we have from West St. Louis County. So to lose that was clearly horrible. Um, but the person that was responsible for doing this, and people are surprised that I 
I would say anything against a fellow Republican, but now I'm a free agent and I will say anything <laughs> I want against those who deserve it. Um, Senator Kurt Schaefer was l- really responsible for the elimination of that district. Who is now running for attorney general yes, in 2016. Yes, and the <laughs> news media is going to hear from me on that because <laughs> what what he did in order to feather his district and make it nicer, he eliminated mine and made Senator Lemke's unwinnable for a Republican. So basically, he took the St. Louis area, who had four Republican senators, and halved it. And that was after all the Democrats and all the Republican senators in the entire St. Louis region got together and agreed on the map that the judges had provided. Kurt then orchestrated, orchestrated a lawsuit that over a tiny little thing threw out the judge's map and eliminated my district. Now, might I point out that there is not one female Republican in the entire Missouri Senate. I would have been the only one. So I consider last year when everyone was talking about the war on women, Kurt Schaefer led it in the state of Missouri. Now, you heard it here first. Now, he, he he was accused of this by Lemke, I think, immediately afterwards, and he has publicly denied it. I take it you don't believe that? Do you have any hard evidence that he was behind it? Did he tell you to your face that he was behind it or something like that? Uh, he... He recruited money from others to fund a lawyer who who sued it, who put the lawsuit out. Um, And um, there were uh, choices of people who served on the new commission, and he was involved in picking who was on that. Now, of course, he's not going to admit it. Um, I wouldn't admit it either if I were him, but golly, he got a posh district that made it so easy for him to win as a Republican and eliminated two conservatives, one of them the only woman in the Senate. So I will continue to speak out against him. I think it disqualifies him in a Republican primary as he moves forward. Did you see any, I mean, not to get too in the weeds here, but the first map was not universally liked either because of the way it split certain counties. And I think that was the reason it was thrown out. You got a district that the first map we're talking about that included parts of Jefferson County and parts of West County. And I remember think talking with you afterwards or you were talking with Joe, you were pretty happy with that district. But other people said that it was unconstitutional because it split Johnson County, it split Lafayette County. Did you agree with any of those arguments, or did you think that you know it should have stand, stood as as is? I, I think it should have stood it is, as it was, or at least find some way in the tiny little minuscule things that they found for the judges to just alter it, which I'm sure they would have been happy to do. I even talked to one of those judges, and he was really conscientious about that map, and I felt far, sorry for the judges because they had worked really hard. With regard to my specific district that I got, um, I had already started working it, and although Jefferson County was totally new for me, I had already been down there, met people, and I loved it. I was so looking forward to representing Jefferson County mm-hmm. in that section. So it was a real disappointment. I still keep in touch with those I, I met during that time. Of course, since then, after you weren't able to run for re-election, you did not just sit around, and that's one of the reasons that we have you here today is that you soon after launched a bid for the Monarch Fire District Board of Directors, which uh, for our listeners to understand, um, the St. Louis area, particularly outside the city of St. Louis, is carved into a a number of fire districts. And each of them have a three-person board. They're technically nonpartisan, uh, 
But in some cases, known political figures like yourself have run for these seats on both sides. And so the Monarch District, which is in West County, this became one of the highest profile races last spring because you were running against former state rep um, Cole McNary. Cole McNary. So uh, you came on the you want to talk a little bit about what your key issue was and kind of what you've been how you've been pressing that forward since you came on the board. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that question because a lot of people do ask me, why does a state senator run for a local fire board? And the reason I was encouraged to do it, because I had been involved for a number of years, about 10, watching what was happening as a taxpayer and a constituent. And I wasn't very happy because there is a serious power struggle going on in the Monarch Fire District and, frankly, others that you mentioned. And that is a power struggle between the taxpayers in that district and the the public employee unions, the government employee unions. And what the government employee unions do is They elect the people on the board by getting involved in the campaigns, heavily financing them, providing all the manpower for it, like staffing the polls and that type of thing. In my particular race with Cole McNary, there were 35 polls. Now, with polls, we cover them 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. It is a big job to get volunteers. Every single poll was double-staffed, at least for Cole McNary, by firefighter union advocates, uh, by firefighter union uh, members, not just advocates, members. And so it's like what we have is a shadow government. The people elect a board, a taxpayer board. In Monarch's case, they did. And then there's a shadow government of the union that directs a lot of things. Now, the reason they want to win these races is because they can have control over things like their salaries, their benefits. So there's a lot at stake for them. But let's talk about the campaign, just so people realize how serious this is. Right. The campaigns really eliminate most citizens because of the money the unions put into it. In most cases, the unions will put in fifty to $100,000 plus all the manpower. And normal citizens just can't compete with that. I talked about the polls. Then in addition, there is an organization called Citizens for Good Government. They are a union-funded uh, pack, I guess you will, or committee, whose purpose it is to destroy the reputation of anyone who would run against their chosen candidate. They did that to me. I can show you the brochures. And so that's what they do. In the case of Melville, Melville District, there was a lady named Bonnie Stegman, wonderful citizen who wanted to do public service, run for her fire board. She was an emergency room nurse and a trainer, so well qualified for it. The union went to her hospital where she worked and tried to get her fired in order to intimidate her to not run for the board. And they did that by this bribe to the hospital. They said, we are not going to bring our ambulances to your ER unless you fire her. That's the kind of bullying tactics that we are all up against. Her, her, the person who came after her, Ed Ryan, they spent $60,000 against him. Mm-hmm. I spent $85,000 to get elected to a fire board after I had represented that same area for 12 years as a rep and a senator. Now, yeah, I think you kind of alluded to in the beginning, people were wondering, you know, why are you running for this seat? And mm-hmm. I think some people were derisively saying, well, you're running for this local board as a state <laughs> senator. Um, I mean, 
to increase your political yeah, career or yeah, something right. like that. But I don't think they're really laughing that much now, now no. that you have a two to one majority. Try to tell me a little bit about what's happened since, you know, you and Robin Harris now have the majority. OK, um, let's talk about if we can. And I'm going to get into that. But but if I can talk a little bit about what's at stake and some of the things sure. that we found that we needed to clean up. Um, one of the things that's at stake is salaries and jobs. Let's talk about the salaries because I'm asked that a lot. The salaries of a private, a five-year private, that's our lowest rung employee with a high school degree or a GED, one or the other, and two years of paramedic training is a total salary package of a hundred and eighteen thousand dollars a year. Now this includes, Base. Now this includes insurance and all the other right. Stuff, right? It includes about eighty-two thousand dollars in salary. It includes $17,000 in health insurance. It includes $20,000, and this is a year, of of pension paid annually by the taxpayers, no contribution from the um, firefighters unless they want to go over and above that, and that's just the base salary. Now, if you ask for their income tax, you'll find in addition to that overtime pay, they get sick leave that they can sell back to the district, they get 12 holidays, they get longevity pay starting after year four at $250 a year, adding up to $5,000 a year. So that base salary is only the base. Now, you compare that to others. Well, let me go back first and tell you what they work for that. They work two days a week for that salary, about average. Well, 24 hours a day. Right. Thank you. I was going to go there. Two days a week, average about nine days a month. And they always get after me for not saying 24 hours a day. So I'm glad, Joe, that you said that. <laughs> but when I say that, my constituents get really mad because we're paying them to sleep. Well, unless there's a fire. Unless there's a fire. But we're Chesterfield. We have real good codes for our buildings. We're really well trained, good equipment. By the way, Cottleville, I heard, has sleep number beds in their bedrooms. (laughs) (laughs) We have lounges with lazy boys. (laughs) We have big screen TVs. One guy won a work comp injury claim worth $147,000 for lifting one of our big screen TVs we gave them. They have gyms. Those are the benefits that they get. Now, you look at others. New York City, their salary seventy six thousand. St. Louis City, fifty one thousand. Ladue, sixty six thousand. Chicago, seventy eight thousand. We're at eighty two, and that's just the base salary. And you know that in New York and St. Louis City and Chicago, they have a big job. Just a little. <laughs> just a little bit. But but as I kind of mentioned in my previous question. Um, from what I've heard, you're now negotiating in public with this union. Correct. So what? tell me a little bit about that process and what do you think it'll yield? Um, we are doing something very historic. And a lot of people don't understand that because they've never seen a collective bargaining negotiation in public. It's usually done behind closed doors. And what pleases me on this, even though the union states at every open meeting, we protest this. We don't like it that you're doing it. They, we, they don't want to do it in public. We continue to do it in public. And what's interesting, not only do taxpayers come and the press comes, but so do the rank-and-file union members. And so they're getting to hear firsthand what their union bosses are doing. Now, before I say any more on that, let me say that we are there to meet and confer 
That is legally what we're responsible for. And we are committed, as we've shown, to be doing it in good faith. We've come with our proposal. They've come with their proposal. And I am very hopeful that we we will agree to a compromise. But with that said, there are a number of things out there that we are looking at. Um, One of them is right now, if you're injured on the job under work comp, you get more money. Monarch pays you more money to be off at home than it does to even be on duty fighting fires. And so the motivation is there, oh, let's twist my ankle and get off because I'll make more money. Now, you guys have been at the Capitol, and you know that when we did the work comp reform, we put it together in a way that you'd get two-thirds of your salary under work comp if you're off, but it would not be taxed. So it's kind of a wash. So they now get, if they're off, two-thirds of their salary untaxed plus another third of their salary that's taxed. So they're making a lot more money to be off. That's one of the things on the table. Now, a couple of things. I had written a fairly detailed story about this fight a few weeks ago, which you can find on the Beacon site. You can search under Monarch, and it should come up. Uh, Your proposal also, though, would get rid of, of, um, in effect, it would be somewhat of a mini version of a right-to-work proposal in that they... Okay. I mean... Which is one of the ways this, I think a lot of people are watching this because um, it would eliminate the current provision where the fire district collects union dues or fees mm-hmm. from every firefighter. This one that the union would have to go to each firefighter, collect it, and wouldn't, and they might have more difficulty from people who didn't want to be a member. And it also changed some of the other disciplinary restrictions, but I know that one with the with the fees is a big deal. Do you think, A, is this something that's being closely watched by other districts? And also, uh, from what I'm hearing, they're also watching this in Jeff City, some of the advocates of a right-to-work proposal. Uh, Yes, it is being watched by others. And I'm beginning to get calls from other political subdivisions, especially constituents of those, wanting their school district with their labor negotiations with their teacher unions and others to start opening them too. So there's been a good amount of interest in following our example on this. So that answer is yes. And what was your other question? Well, I mean, how much pushback are you getting from the unions on this? Because obviously this is a big issue for them. Well, for, for them, at every meeting they start out with, we protest that we're in public. But our feeling on the board is we're negotiating the public's money. It should be transparent. They should be able to watch it. Now, it's interesting, though, to watch the rank-and-file members doing this because it came up in the discussion when they protested um, our desire to let the rank and file write them a check for their union dues rather than force them to have it taken out of their salary every time we do a salary uh, payment. Um, I said in Tennessee they did this. They said we're no longer going to take uh, a piece of their salary out and send it to the union. We're going to let each of the members decide if they want to pay the union. And what's happened in Tennessee is that because of that, the union members are getting better service from their union bosses because they can hold them more accountable when they can withhold those checks. Now, I think it was important for our rank-and-file members who were watching that negotiation to think about that 
And I've actually had conversations when I was in the Senate, and I was actually holding the hearings in my general laws committee on right to work. When I had conversation with union members, not union bosses, but union members, they really liked that idea. That was going to be my next question. I wanted to take this a little broader because right. I do follow you on Twitter, and you have not held back on your criticism of some of your Republican colleagues yes. for being squishy on issues like right to work and and union issues. Are you confident that the legislature will be able to pass something like that, our so-called paycheck protection with the current legislative composition that's there now? Um, I have talked to Speaker Jones in the House. He feels pretty confident that he can get it through the House. Having been a member of the Senate, I think it will be tough in the Senate. And I'll name names. Eric Schmidt has taken almost $70,000 from unions, a lot of it from firefighter government employee unions. Now, for our listeners, so they know, Eric Schmidt is a state senator from Glendale. Republican. Republican. Yes. Absolutely. And um, my experience with Senator Schmidt um, from the get-go, and I supported him, I gave to him, I went door-to-door for him, but my experience has been that if he can not face a tough vote, that's where he is. This is a tough vote for him, being that there is a lot of union money behind him and a lot of union support behind him. So I think if it gets past the House, what citizens need to do is concentrate on some of those squishies and Kurt Schaefer is probably going to be a squishy, too, because he's taken about 25000 from from uh, unions. And, and that's typically a Democrat thing. I am. Let me just say, I'm not against unions. They have their spot. But typically, Republican principles do not give away the store to a community organization, to use Charlie no, Dewey's term. <laughs> well, glad we, we included the county executive as a reference. <laughs> but but my, my follow-up to that is I've always assumed, and I think you kind of saw this, I guess, in 2011, that if right to work comes up, it's an all-hands-on-deck Democratic filibuster. So aren't they going to be a bigger obstacle than Schaefer or Schmidt in this instance? Um, I don't think so, because you first got to get it out to the floor to have a vote. You have to first have the willingness to bring it to a vote. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to meet, need to be some pressure on the Senate of those squishies to make sure they're willing to bring it to the vote and they're willing to stand there and take a vote. Now, are you, ta- now would, are you talking about like a ballot initiative for this or something that goes to the governor? I- oh, I think they would have to do it to a ballot initiative because you know the governor would veto yeah. it. And do you think there's some inherent risk of doing it on the ballot that it might mobilize union support and that could come back to bite legislative candidates in 2014? Um, Well, you could look at that two ways. Uh, Yes, the unions are going to be strongly interested in a ballot measure to that for that. But how do they divide their money between individual legislator campaigns and this ballot measure? Okay, so you think they would direct it more to the ballot major and then not maybe have as much for individual legislative candidates? Well, it would be a decision they would need to make. Right. So. with all this going on and with a lot of people paying attention to this, uh, I think one of the things we are have been missing it a bit is, A, I wanted to, we want to talk a little bit about your political future. And also, you were very active when you were in the state Senate talking about uh, you were opposed to the Medicaid expansion. A lot of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act wanted to make sure we give you a chance to stick a little of that in, in case you're still involved, because you were one of the chief sponsors of... Um, Prop C, which passed in 2010, which was in effect in any an attempt to prevent the 
ACA mandates from being imposed in Missouri? Well, obviously, with my sponsorship of the Healthcare Freedom Act, which overwhelmingly passed in 2010 and sent a message to Washington, D.C., that we wanted to make our own health care decisions in Missouri. Um, I'm, I'm clearly very interested in Missouri and still being able to do that. I do not like the health insurance exchange. I feel like the biggest problem with it is that they're bringing in community organizers, if you will, to be that are not licensed and certified and trained to be insurance experts. And I just had to research insurance, liability insurance for our board. It is very complicated. You have to be able to trust the agent and the broker. And so to bring in people that know nothing about it to help people buy things, I think, is a very scary thing. Now, with regard to the Medicaid expansion, the short answer is we just can't afford it. But I I hear a lot of people in response to that will saying, how can you say that when the government, federal government's going to pay 90 percent of it? Mm -hmm. And I guess I always say when I use the term government, that's taxpayer money that's paying for all that. We've got one six, one in six people qualify for Medicaid right now. Not all of them are signed up. And we are, are already expanding and inflating at 7% a year with what we have. Now, if the ones who are not signed up sign up because they're going to be fined if they don't, then we've got all that more money. And we've got the rest of government that we have to look at. For instance, we are spending $3.3 billion on Medicaid. We are spending only $3 billion on K-12. through I hate to use the term only. I mean in comparison to Medicaid. If you look at 1993 to 2003, our revenue went up 68%. K-12 through funding went up 30%. Higher ed, as you probably realize, Mm -hmm. 0% has it gone up. Social services, 180% up in that same time period. So we've gone in that time period from 37% of our budget on education down to 27. We're still constitutional, though. And with social services from 20% in 1993 to almost a third. So the bottom line is, as I started, We can't afford it. What do we want to do? Get rid of our public schools? Are there any reforms that could be made to Medicaid that would make expansion palatable toward you? Or is this just a philosophical, we can't expand Medicaid to 138 percent, no way, no how? We don't have the money. It's not, I don't want to. It's none of that. I mean, you know we've got some fraud in the system, a significant amount already. And I'll tell you what, I hear from outstate people. I was talking to a man who has done some some work for me. He works very hard cutting trees. He works every day. He has two kids, and he supports them. And he has a friend who is able-bodied, has a family. He works zero only because he can get off on Medicaid and all the other welfare and food stamps supporting his family, and it's much easier to do that than to go out and work. And my friend who works cutting trees is very mad at him. And so we want it for the people who really need it, but when there's so many stories like that, we have got to find a way to help those who desperately need it and not expand it and make it attract more and more people who are able-bodied to work. To jump off of... Joe's second part to that question, I think you might have answered this in her story. Um, There has been, since you have left the Senate, some talk about what your political future is going to be. I believe you you can't run in the 24th district. You would have had to move by now, I would imagine. Correct. And I don't think you want to move a mile just to run in the Senate (laughs) district. 
Um, I don't think you're going to primary Senator Nieves. I think you've told me that on on occasion. Well, it's in my story, too. She said she would. uh, Yeah, that's been widely known. So do you see a path back to the legislature to you? Because it's obvious that you're still very engaged on a lot of legislative topics. And is, is is, is your time... Is there still more time in the legislature for you, or do you think what you're going to be doing for the near future is going to be more locally based? Um, Let me say first, and I told Joe this, and she repeated it in her article, my main commitment right now is to clean up this situation with regard to the fire districts and the control of those fire districts and try to help this power struggle move back to the taxpayers and the people because there is a huge amount at stake here. Mm -hmm. That's my first commitment. Mm -hmm. I will never leave that. Mm-hmm. I will never leave that while my responsibility is there to do that. Now, if I can do that and the Senate, which I made, Maria Chappelle Nadal serves on a public school board and the Senate. So if that opportunity is there and if, big if, if there is for some reason an opening where they need a candidate, I'm ready to go back with the four years I have left. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel really compelled to do that, mm-hmm. um, but I'm open. Yeah, because yeah, she resides in Nieves's district. Yeah. Right. Just make that Do you clear. think a St. Louis County person can win that district? I mean, it's half and half between St. Louis County and Franklin. Good question on that. Typically, you would not find that to be the case. It depends on when it happens. Mm-hmm. If it happened, say right now, let's just say if Nieves says, I'm not going to run and it happened right now. I think I w- a St. Louis County person, particularly me, would have a lot of chance at it just because of the known name. And mm-hmm. by the way, this monarch is giving me more name than I ever thought I would get and more following <laughs> than I thought I would get. Plus, there are not other ones who are ready to step up to the plate mm-hmm. right now. There's some reps out there, but you don't have that strong Senate experience and name recognition, which I would have. Now, you wait 10 years down the line, no. Yeah. I I do kind of, as you kind of mentioned before, and, um, you know, your your reputation for hard work ethic would make you a formidable candidate if that came up or anything so i would i would tell you jason i would hate to run against me (laughs) what any thought of running statewide i mean like for secretary of state or i mean there's state treasurer's gonna be a number of offices up in 2016 i take it that you won't be campaigning for kurt schaefer's attorney general (laughs) bid i will be campaigning against kurt schaefer (laughs) i will be campaigning against eric schmidt because they deserve it and they've asked for lieutenant governor I, I don't know, but to me, they both should be disqualified in a Republican primary, and I will not shut my mouth about that. As for me, when if you run statewide, it is so hard. You are going all the time to all these township meetings and whatever, and I just have to tell you, I don't have it in my gut. You've got to be burning to do something like that, and I just don't have it. I'm having too much fun as a free agent. I, I'm sure Democrats are sad that they're not going to be able to attack you on a statewide level. <laughs> They're only going to have to attack you on a fireboard level for now. <laughs> and we'll we'll end it at that note. I'm being facetious, obviously. So, <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. To close us out here, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CSMcDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe. At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And our guest. At Jay... Just the letter J, Cunningham, Mo. Very good. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long.